Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. Today's episode was uh, recorded on the 30th of January 2018 at approximately 9.45 London time. So obviously if there's anything that's happened in the time after recording, we are unable to cover it in this podcast. As always, if you want to find out any information about the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre, be sure to check out our website, uel.ac.uk slash TERC, and follow us on Twitter at TERCUEL, and tweet at us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. It's my great pleasure to welcome onto today's pod Dr. Donald Holbrook, a lecturer at the Department of Politics, Philosophy and Religion at Lancaster University and a visiting fellow at the International Centre of Counterterrorism in The Hague. Uh, prior to these positions, he was a senior research fellow at the Centre for the Study of Terrorism and Political Violence at the University of St Andrews, which he joined way back in 2008. That seems a long time ago now, Donald. Yeah. His research has focused mostly on beliefs, ideas and media in the context of terrorism and political violence, especially on how terrorists interact with published media and social media, and how disengagement has changed over time. He has published on a wide variety of topics relating to these themes, including a book, edited volumes, journal articles, as well as reports and other deliverables for counterterrorism practitioners and policymakers. He currently manages a large-scale research project dissecting ways in which individuals involved in terrorism use different types of media, developing case studies and thematic analyses of different ideological milieus, including far-right and Islamist extremism. Different types of activity, including domestic terrorism and foreign fighters, and different organisational contexts such as group versus lone actors, as well as comparisons across sections. Donald, thanks for joining us on today's pod. John, good morning. Thank you very much for having me. So how did you get involved? How did you get interested in this area of research? Gosh, uh, several years ago now, uh, I started becoming interested in, uh, I guess, security studies and, and defense and these kind of more conventional ways in which the discipline of international relations starts talking about our security concerns and uh, things to do with uh, public safety and uh, uh, defense and these kind of issues. And I did a master's course in Cambridge in 2005, which was very kind of uh, uh, established in, in the sort of uh, uh, ways in which it was teaching the curriculum. It was a sort of old fashioned, I guess, in, in the kind of strategic studies literature that we were that we were uh, uh, taught. But as my uh, thesis project for that course, I uh, did a, uh, uh, chose a topic which by then was kind of unfolding, and it was the publication of cartoons in, in uh, uh, depicting the Prophet Muhammad in Danish newspapers, which happened in autumn of that year. And I was just fascinated by, by the kind of different security implications by that. I was fascinated by how institutions were trying to respond to that, uh, and sort of how that unfolded, that whole episode, in different parts of the world. And that kind of got me interested in, in focusing on these kind of less conventional 
security concerns and our response to them. Uh, and that led me to think about how I can explore those issues in more detail. And that inevitably led me to St Andrews, where I decided to do another master's degree and then ultimately a PhD, gradually specialising, I guess you could say, in areas related to uh, not only terrorism, political violence uh, at the CSTPV in St Andrews, but also these kind of issues of, of, of how extremist ideas spread the components of those ideas, what it is that angers people, what it is that gets individuals to mobilize for non-material reasons, you know, what, what, what convinces them that, that A, something is wrong with the world, and then this solution that's involved in political violence is the response to those problems. And, and, and that's ultimately one of the questions which I then explored in my PhD as well. So this has been a sort of hopefully relatively coherent trajectory towards looking at these kind of questions which relate to terrorism, political violence in different ways. And what way did you approach this then within your PhD? What way did you go about analysing this? Well, the, the way I uh, went about it, well, first I chose the subject matter, which I, I think had been dealt with in a number of different ways, which was uh, uh, the public communications by the Al-Qaeda leadership. And they obviously, by that time, had spent a huge amount of effort reaching out to people, uh, trying to convince them of uh, not only the way in which uh, they saw the world, but also to try and appreciate what they were trying to do to change it to their particular constituencies. Uh, and at that point, uh, uh, the literature was very preoccupied about how they were materially weak. Al-Qaeda used to exist as a, 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 an organization that, as an organization, had tremendous capacity to, 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 to genuinely do things. But after 9-11 and in the years after 9-11, it, it became institutionally much weaker and much more reliant on its public communication efforts to reach out to people and to design a narrative, a communicative package which was gripping enough so that individuals would see where they're coming from and sympathize with that view. Uh, and the way in which I decided to approach that kind of discourse, if you like, was to go back to some of the, the uh, existing literature on, on political protest, uh, and, and particular literature which comes out of sociology in the US, about how uh, uh, political protest movements have done precisely this. That, 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 that they try and generate a narrative that mobilizes a population. That population doesn't have to be very large, but, but it is... The, the constituency that they've identified. And, and uh, we know very well that groups like Al-Qaeda within this kind of Islamist extremist milieu see themselves as vanguards. So they don't have a problem with the fact that, that they represent a, 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 a very small group of individuals. But they're, they're, they're very determined in their conviction that what they are presenting to people is the right way forward. So there is this kind of confidence in their messaging which uh, means that this literature uh, uh, that I applied, which, which mostly uh, is from, uh, uh, as I said, sociology in the US, and a, a, especially a couple of guys, uh, Robert Benford and David Snow, who've done a lot of work on uh, thinking about ways in which social movement organizations try and generate a message that mobilizes people. 
uh, something they call collective action frames. And I mean, that's a framework that was designed, I think, in the 1980s, and it's based on on uh, work which goes further back than that, work by John Wilson, for example, thinking about ideology and the mobilizing potential of ideology and mobilizing uh, individuals, particularly those who feel a sense of grievance, political grievance. So there's a kind of thread there uh, uh, in that literature, which I was interested in applying. Uh, and and I, that's why I chose uh, some of Benford and Snow's work as, as kind of one of my influences, if you like, because I've always been fascinated by how these uh, 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 individual leaders of terrorist organizations especially when they become materially weak, try and generate that message to reach out to people. Yeah. So that was the framework I chose. And you, you see this, so the, the PhD went on to, to be published as uh, the book, The Al-Qaeda Doctrine, The Framing and, and Evolution of the Leadership's Public Discourse. Yeah. Um, and you, you can see you uh, applying this framework there in that book. Um, do you want to tell the listeners a bit more about this book? So we've got 250 statements uh, focusing primarily on the statements of Osama bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri. So could you, could you tell us a bit about um, what the statements were saying, uh, over what timeline it is, and what your key findings were? Well, the, the, so the book covers, as you said, the statements from bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri, who were the, 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 the two premier leaders at the time of, of, of al-Qaeda as, as an organization, the movement. Uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri throughout that period was was far more prolific than bin Laden. The, the nature of his communication is somewhat different. Uh, I uh, approached translations of, of, of their output, both as it exists in books, but also by the time I was looking at that they were, as an organization, quite good at uh, publishing this material online and elsewhere. So I assembled uh, translations of all these communiques together and then uh, uh, coded them um, uh, according to the framework, the theoretical framework of uh, that I mentioned of, of um, uh, Benford and Snow and others, uh, trying to look at three dimensions initially. These are the kind of umbrella headings, if you like. So it's diagnosis. What did they define that's wrong with the world? Did they justify their activism? And who do they blame for those grievances? The second subheading is prognosis what do they present as a solution to those problems and again how are those solutions justified and then the third category is uh, something which benford and snow refer to as motivational framing um, which is tricky but it refers to the ways in which you try and generate a narrative which gets people not only to agree with a particular vision of the world, but also to do something about it. There's another scholar in this field called Scott Bird, and he talked about bringing people from the balconies to the barricades, which, which I think is a nice term. So you get people to, 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 to move from being observers, passive observers, to becoming active participants. And I thought this was a neat way in which to sort of dissect this 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 aggregate narrative of, of the Al Qaeda leadership dating back from uh, the early 1990s, um, uh, and particularly Bin Laden did interviews after he arrived in Afghanistan in 1996. Was was got open to speak to to both members of the local press and the international press, newspapers like the Independent uh, uh, and others, uh, to put forward his vision, and then it, it uh, had an endpoint. 
of uh, uh, around 2014, I think it was. Uh, so really gives you an opportunity to do quite a longitudinal analysis of the evolution of this discourse, where, as I said earlier, uh, Al-Qaeda went from being a materially strong movement to being a very materially weak movement, albeit uh, attached to, if not in control of, an extremely powerful brand. And those three elements of their discourse, the diagnosis, the prognosis, and then their efforts to reach out to people and mobilize them changed over time. And particularly for some of the debates we're having now, and, and obviously our concern about what's going on in Syria, the emergence of the Islamic State group, so-called Islamic State group, which obviously was uh, uh, broke out of one of Al-Qaeda's affiliates in Iraq, this debate about how they justify what they're doing, I think for me, was particularly interesting because that's changed over time. And you saw that changing over time in Al-Qaeda's discourse, that, that, that they've escalated in terms of the nature of the violence that they were prepared to justify. They were quite limited in terms of uh, the, the kind of violence they were justifying uh, uh, in terms of the violence they were doing themselves and the type of violence they were happy for other people to engage in. It was very limited in terms of targeting in the 1990s, for example. It sort of expands uh, 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 before 9-11, and then there's a lot of work after 9-11 to justify the vastly more indiscriminate targeting that they saw. But then gradually you see the brakes being applied, especially when they start losing control of their affiliate in Iraq. Uh, um, and those following up Abu Musab al-Sarqawi in Iraq and uh, what was then al-Qaeda in Iraq became the Islamic State of Iraq, clearly pursue sectarian targeting and more indiscriminate targeting that the al-Qaeda leadership is uncomfortable with. We see that in, in internal uh, documentation that's available now after, after uh, the, the raid in Pakistan where bin Laden was killed, but we also saw it I think more interestingly emerging in some of the public discourse as well, towards the end of my period that I cover in the book, the breaks being applied on, on the kind of violence they're prepared to condone, and a very clear and acute concern, again in the public statements, about the consequences of taking this too far. Not only in terms of the moral questions that this raises, but also just purely in practical terms, because they see themselves as a vanguard and in that sense are happy with being a, a, a small group but nevertheless they think that they're representing a much larger cohort and if they get the feeling that they're alienating that constituency then that causes very clear concern. So there are these kind of things that you can bring out if you do a longitudinal analysis along these lines and that's what I was trying to achieve in, in the book. And would you have seen uh, similar happen in other groups who was going through similar uh, evolutions? Is this a, a common occurrence that you would see in the changing of the uh, the the diagnosis and the prognosis? Uh, I, th I think so. I th I th well, I, th I certainly think it's a neat way for us to design some research questions. Mm -hmm. And if you have the data to do a longitudinal analysis, I'd imagine you will see those changes. And I think it's particularly interesting when these kind of inconsistencies emerge in, in, the, in the overall narrative because the literature on collective action frames also tells us about uh, or at least helps us hypothesize about how you generate a strong message and uh, if the message over time is inconsistent or if you begin to feel that those who are generating the message don't have the credibility partly because they are inconsistent uh, uh, then, then that at least helps us think about 
uh, weaknesses in, in the message. And I think it's a much more, we talk about counter narratives all the time. We don't really necessarily think about the, the, the components of a particularly strong one based on the weaknesses we identify in the initial narrative that we're trying to counter. So I think this is, but based on the fact that this is a very, uh, uh, this is a very established literature which has been applied in multiple different contexts. I think it's, it, it offers us quite neat tools, if you like, to generate those kind of questions. So yes, I think it is easily applicable to, 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 other, to other groups, organizations, movements, whatever you want to call it. And when we look at exactly uh, what was being said across, across this longitudinal design, um, do we see, in particular reference to Islam, do we see the narrative by these two prominent individuals? Does that change? Does it become more critical um, across time, or does it change in any other way? It does change. I mean, uh, uh, the, the way in which they use scripture is all about analogy, pretty much, uh, uh, which is obviously a very common form within this context to try and justify something that you're doing now. You, you will go back to... Uh, either the Quran or, or particularly the Hadith that uh, that uh, capture sayings and doings of the Prophet uh, to try and illustrate that what you're doing now represent what was accepted practice at the time. So, so they've engaged in in that sort of work. I'm in Zahri in particular to try and illustrate that. Uh, uh, and he's obviously not the only one who's done this. Uh, actions such as suicide bombings. Actions such as acts of violence where there can be uh, uh, collateral damage uh, are not only justifiable but also mean that you can continue. So, so uh, you can continue the fighting even though if you've effectively killed people you weren't supposed to kill. And, and that's all based on, on, uh, uh, on trying to find some sort of religious analogy where they think that they can... Uh, uh, present a narrative which is convincing enough to their followers. Now, these people obviously are not scholars, so this isn't necessarily a scholarly debate. Mm. This is this is uh, a narrative package which, as I say, needs to at least come across as being convincing for those who are potentially sympathetic to this narrative, uh, and that involves a lot of uh, 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 religious referencing, in particular, trying to find ways in which their actions now, and the tactics they use, and the people they kill are somehow a logical extension of, of, of uh, what happened in the formative years of Islam. Okay. And you're obviously dealing with the translations of these. Yes. How did you verify these translations? How were you, how, how were you certain that these were trustworthy? Uh, well, a lot of the translations uh, came from the organization itself. Uh, I triangulated the transcripts wherever I could. Government translations I also received, um, uh, particularly from the US, mm -hmm. that were of very high quality. I triangulated about uh, just under half of the, t of, of the transcripts in, in the book. And then what I started doing, and this uh, uh, relates to, a, a, I guess, a continuation of this work, is to commission translations myself. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I studied Arabic in, 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 in university, so I, I have a very limited capacity to go through uh, some of the original material myself, but, but my language skills aren't nearly good enough to, to read this material in the original language. But I, I commissioned translations uh, uh, by uh, established bodies that have uh, uh, worked particularly for the court system here in, in the UK. To, to generate an, a, a very high quality translation. So I reached out to them 
to uh, provide uh, translations, uh, high quality English language translations of the Arabic originals, where they not only conveyed the nuance of the content, but also included things like poetry, which, which culturally in this context is very, very important. Mm. If, you, if you go to often off-the-shelf commercial translations of this kind of material, poetry is often excluded, and it's obviously very, very difficult tra to translate in meaningful ways, but it is important for us to be aware that it's there, mm. because there, there are key statements in, in, my, in, in the second book, which is a, a compilation of, of statements, but as I say, it's a sort of continuation of, of some of the, of the same work, uh, statements by Ayman al-Zawahri. Uh, there's a key statement, the first statement in the book, uh, w w which is his eulogy after the death of bin Laden, where, where he sort of celebrates bin Laden's life. And poetry is absolutely key there, sort of metaphorical poetry. Uh, and we tried very hard to, to at least convey to the reader that that poetry was there and, and, and the sort of key aspects of, mm. of, of that poetry, difficult as it was to translate, but nevertheless to, to, to make sure that that was part of the transcript. So that's kind of how that worked in terms of terms of the, the primary source material progressed. And this second book, that I, when we were discussing uh, in the lead up to this to this interview, you said these two books are connected. This second book you're, you're talking about is Al-Qaeda 2.0, A Reader. Um, this is quite different to, to most books in our, in our area. As you describe, it's a lot of it is translations of statements by Ayman al-Zawahri. Why did you feel it was important to put a book like this out? Uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, uh, the first practical reason is that it's, I think it's quite difficult for students to go online and try and find this material. I think uh, teachers, as, as, as I'm sure you know very well, face a very difficult uh, uh, question about how we should guide and facilitate their activity online. Legally, uh, it's become very difficult in the UK. There are issues uh, in that respect as well. So I thought it would be good to have a safe resource, uh, a contextualised resource as well for some of this primary source material. So this book contains statements by Manal Zawahri uh, after the death of bin Laden up to 2016. During that period, he effectively became, or formally became leader of Al-Qaeda, although not everybody was happy about that. Uh, uh, so I thought it'd be useful to have this material accessible for, for students and others who are interested in this topic. I introduce all of the statements um, and, and put them in the particular context that I think makes them relevant. And then there's an introduction, general introduction to the book, uh, uh, and other kind of contextual material there to aid the reader to, to, to make sense of the primary source material which is in the book. The other reason to focus on Ayman al-Zawahri's output during this period is that this particular time period also coincided when all of our attention was on the rise of, of, of the so-called Islamic State organization and what they were saying and what they were doing. Uh, rightly so, obviously, because they were responsible for, for horrific acts of violence were, were taking control of very significant territory in the Middle East. Uh, and positioned themselves uh, uh, quite differently from, from Al-Qaeda and other organizations within this environment. Ayman al-Zawahri uh, uh, is not someone who is seen as a charismatic leader, uh, but he is very prolific, and I think some of what he has to say is quite interesting, particularly during this period. 
and, and I sort of wanted to draw attention to some of that. And I guess there are two main reasons for that. One of them is because th th there is almost, going back to the counter-narrative conversation, th th there is almost an element, sometimes a very explicit counter-narrative in this material. You, you see here uh, uh, two representatives of organizations within an environment where everybody's supposed to be united, but they very clearly are not. And uh, you see Amin al-Zawahri developing arguments against the rise of ISIS to begin with, things to do with how they pledge loyalty and fealty and so on. Uh, uh, but in particular, uh, his concern about their violence, about the sectarian nature of their violence, uh, about the extent to which they're prepared to target Christians, even though Ayman al-Zawahri and al-Qaeda has been responsible for justifying attacks against Christians and uh, the Shia and others, the way that al-Qaeda would always do it is at least to try and say that that was because of some particular action, that was because of something uh, something that those individuals or group of individuals did. So that would be Shia recruits in Baghdad, for example, who were joining the police. But it wouldn't be massacring the Shia or the Christians just because of who they are. Uh, and that's a key difference between the two organizations. And he's speaking out against all of this, which is really quite remarkable because Amin al-Zawahri is also a leader of a terrorist organization, which is 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 utterly extreme within this context. And I think it's important for us to appreciate how extreme the other guys are by comparing them with this. And he also makes references to, to, to other examples in, in history, whether that's the distance, distant past, uh, uh, things like the, the, the so-called Khawarij um, um, uh, uh, under Imam Ali, who, who were the kind of, the, the, those who effectively left the fold of Islam because they were being seen as being uh, too extreme, he makes those references, uh, as well as much more contemporary references, particularly to the GIA in Algeria, of, of, of making that analogy and that connection to illustrate that ISIS represents effectively the same. So that's one reason there's a counter-narrative dimension to that. The second dimension, the second reason I think it's it's an interesting collection of statements is because he's beginning to frame his organization, Al-Qaeda, and his, uh, or their role in, in the broader militant movement uh, as, as, as something which is much looser. It's not an organization anymore. It's, 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 it's a concept, it's an idea, it, it's, uh, uh, it, it is a movement that can involve different kind of organizational components, whether they're Al-Qaeda or not. And, and I think that's quite an interesting way in which to uh, uh, see how he's kind of reframing his, his activism and, and, and his particular organization. Okay, so you're, you're talking there about Al-Zawari changing the description of Al-Qaeda, talking about how it's, it's more of an idea than an organization. Are we are we seeing this? Like obviously, your description of it there was a bit more accurate than what I was saying there. But are we seeing what Alzwari was saying in those statements actually true on the ground when we look at Al Al Qaeda as a, as a, at this time? Well, and I think in many ways it's very convenient, obviously, to to try and reframe after the event. Uh, Organize, organizational reconceptualize effectively organizational decline after the event as if that was an intelligent design all along uh, and I don't think that's the first time we've seen that in this context 
so, so in that sense, it's it's a very convenient way to say, and, and that's uh, effectively why he's made those references. Uh, this is bizarre format that As-Sahab, the, the, the propaganda wing of, of Al-Qaeda, if you like, has had for some years now, which is to, to do mock interviews of, of leaders, Ayman al-Zawahri in particular. And this was in one of those uh, interviews, so-called interviews, and the transcript of that is included in the book, where, where he's asked, well, I mean, Obama in the State of the Union speech said Al-Qaeda is dead. How do you respond to that? And obviously this is a pre-prepared Q&A. And, and his response to that is, well, I mean, Al-Qaeda is an idea. How are you going to kill an idea? Which, in a way, is quite a neat way in which to try and reframe the, the, the organizational collapse of, of what used to be used to be a fairly cohesive entity. But that doesn't mean to say that his answer isn't interesting. And, and, and I think the irony there is obviously that this is exactly how scholars have been describing Al-Qaeda for quite some time, that it's effectively morphing into a concept, an idea that, that might embody and embrace different organizational components within it, whose initiative is usually local mm. uh, rather than necessarily top-down. But it's just interesting to see that, that uh, at least as far as he represents any kind of organizational hierarchy, that that's also how he... Uh, is beginning to frame things as well uh, because again it, it 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 adds credence to uh, the way in which we apply some of the theoretical literature movements if that's how they're framing themselves mm-hmm. and so obviously you're saying that and so many are saying that all the concentration is on is at the moment or so-called mm. islamic state and um, because of the atrocities that they're they're involved in when we're looking at physical attacks that Al-Qaeda has been responsible for or linked to uh, in recent years, what are we talking about then and in these, local, in these local areas? I think it's difficult. I think predominantly in the past few years we've been talking about a, a, a attacks that have been conceived of locally uh, and, and the initiative has been predominantly been local. Uh, uh, I think some of those individuals might have sought prior approval. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think in, in, in organisational components... Most most of those, uh, the, the 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 mechanisms, if you like, of of the attack planning, I think, are predominantly local, and I think we've seen that for quite some years now. The question now is is obviously how uh, 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 how we see ISIS unfolding as as it becomes organisationally weaker as well, and and I think we see an element of that. We we will continue to see ISIS operating in a capacity to uh, uh, organise attacks. And initiate attacks uh, that are then carried out in cities in Europe and elsewhere. But you will also see individuals who have had no contact with them. They might have reached out to people they think are associated with them on social media, but otherwise they're operating on their own initiative. And then they will operate uh, uh, by either pledging allegiance or declaring their loyalty to uh, the leadership of ISIS carrying out attacks in its name, but but are doing that effectively as completely autonomous actors. And I think we saw the same with Al Qaeda for many many years. So I think we'll be seeing the same kind of uh, 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 framework, if you like, uh, as as ISIS morphs into a new state, if you like, or a, a, a new conceptual state. When you were introducing uh, Al Zawahiri earlier on in the 
in the podcast, you mentioned that when he was taking uh, taking over from in uh, in the aftermath of Bin Laden's death, that not everyone was happy with this. Why? Why did you say that? What? What were you? What did? You, what do we see in, uh, from other leading actors to indicate that they weren't happy with this? Well, uh, uh, in many ways, it was supposed to be a very logical progression, but it took a while for that to become official. Ayman uh, al Zawahiri is certainly not going to be seen as a representative of the new generation because he's, he's almost the definition of someone who's of the old generation. He's someone who became involved in political activism at the age of 16. Uh, and he was arrested in Egypt in, in, in after the assassination of Anwar Sadat in 1981. So he's really been involved in this space for a very, very long time. Uh, and it, it is hardly sending out the message that this is fresh blood, that, that, that this is that this is a new generation of leaders. And I think the, the uh, focus now is obviously on what happens uh, 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 when he's no longer there and whether the organization or the movement will be in, will, will have the capacity to regenerate that leadership again. And, and, and there's a lot of talk obviously about, about Bin Laden's son mm-hmm. and, and whether he's going to be in a position to kind of revitalize effectively a new generation. Because I'm al I think pretty obviously was not going to be that guy, mm-hmm. and it's something that we have to watch. We have to we have to to see what happens what happens next, I suppose. And it's it's something that a lot of a lot of people might be turning a blind eye to, as you said, with the focus on, on IS. But uh, but yeah, it needs to be watched closely. When we're um, looking at this, and when we're looking at the changes uh, in a group like Al Qaeda. Um, you can see a reconceptualization of what the group is uh, turning into what you were, what Al Zawari was talking about. It's been more of an idea, and I'm seeing it more localized. And you can see this uh, being linked to the definitional debates then as well about what, how would you refer to this group? And one of the group, one of the researchers that you indicated was. Um, was quite influential for you is someone who is really engaged in these definitional debates, and that's Alex Schmidt. And you yeah. put forward his piece, uh, "Political Terrorism: A New Guide uh, to Actors, Authors, Concepts, Database Theories, and Literatures," which he did with uh, Albert Youngman in '88. What was it about uh, Schmidt's work? And you said you said to me that you could talk about any of Schmidt's mm. work. What is it about Alex's work that influenced you? Well, Alex Schmidt was my uh, PhD supervisor, uh, along with Max Taylor at St Andrews, uh, and and in that sense, both of them have been uh, hugely influential uh, for, for for me, and uh, and, I'm, and I'm really grateful. To have had that opportunity to to work with both of them, such huge scholars in this field, coming from very different perspectives and disciplines as well, to to have been able to work with both of them in this field, uh, uh, for, for for me was an absolute privilege. Uh, so in that sense, I, I I could have picked any kind of aspects of the of their output really, because I just think that they're very influential for me personally, but also in this field. And I think, as you said, with with, with Alex. We keep talking about these definitional challenges of terrorism, and I think it's very easy uh, to dismiss that as something tedious, but at the same time, we want that to be dealt with correctly because there are elements. It's very interesting that it's a difficult concept for us to define, and I think it it, it illustrates 
the complexity of, of what we're trying to do here. Terrorism is not a concept or a topic which is owned by a single di discipline, and I've always found that very interesting, depending on your, your level of analysis and depending on where you're coming from, depending on what you're trying to focus on. Uh, uh, you have to be multidisciplinary by definition. And, and, and it's neat, it's useful for us to be able to go back to Alex's work to try and illustrate exactly how that plays out. Uh, and we see the impact of that in government as well. I mean, the, 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 no single government body or department will, will have the remit to respond to terrorism because it, it, it involves so many different moving components. And I've always found that very interesting about what we're trying to deal with here. Uh, what I think uh, I particularly li like if, if I had to put a finger at a single aspect of Alex's work in this particular realm, in the definitional realm, which I think is of huge significance, is the, the part of this definition, which he came up in in 88, is to talk about the way in which uh, terrorism is violence where uh, the actual victims are not the only victims. That, 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 Violence is symbolic in the sense that you carry out an attack in order to promote a message. So violence is communication. Mm -hmm. And I think that aspect of terrorism is key. It's key to understanding what it is. Uh, and I also think it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, you, you see acts, for example, like Breivik's attack in Norway in 2011, where... The terrorist attack it was a dual, effectively terrorist, beginning with a bombing in Oslo and then a horrific mass shooting in Utøya. That act of violence, or those acts of violence, the purpose of those were to promote a, a manifesto, which he'd written and he sent to a, a, about a thousand email addresses just before the attack. Nobody would have read it, nobody would have cared what he was writing about, what he was saying. But now that he'd done this attack, everybody was reading it. It was, it was, I remember you could download the entire copy of the manifesto on the BBC website. What are the likelihood of that happening if, if he hadn't been responsible for this attack? He, he, he did a trailer which, put on, which he put on YouTube, uh, advertising his manifesto. Who would have cared? Who would have clicked on that link on YouTube? if you hadn't been responsible for this attack. So it's that kind of relationship between communication and terrorism, which I think is, is interesting. It's very important for us as scholars to understand. I mean, we, we see 9-11 being the uh, uh, most substantial uninterrupted TV event in history. Uh, you know, and, and, and that means that this is something which we're going to see which is going to keep happening effectively because this is publicity which you can't buy literally and effectively not in that position uh, it's that symbolic nature of the violence which i think is 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 interesting and it's important and i think the way in which alex has uh, uh, drawn our attention to it in his work is as i say uh, uh, a particular importance yeah and it's it's something that that we need to we need to constantly be aware of. I agree mm. with you that that's a hugely important part of our definition, and it's oftentimes lost at the moment. You see that there's a tendency to jump on everything and every and any 
any extreme attack and automatically label it as terrorism. We see this after the Las Vegas shooting. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, that if we don't r- draw on this component and the work of Alex and others, it's it loses its sense of meaning, this yes. word. Um, and there needs to be a distinction. And it doesn't necessarily say because something isn't classified as terrorism doesn't mean that it isn't a horrific act of violence, but it's just oh, another absolutely. form of yeah, violence. Exactly. That, exactly. And that's oftentimes, uh, oftentimes missed. And you mentioned there that uh, you had um, Max Taylor, a yes. previous guest here, as, as, your other, as your other supervisor. You had uh, two heavyweights there, all right, yes, on your supervisory did, team. And you picked um, a piece of his uh, that he did with John Horgan uh, called A Conceptual Framework for Addressing Psychological Process in the Development of the Terrorist. Mm. Uh, what was it from this that you drew? Well, I'm, I'm not a psychologist. That's not my background. My background, as I said, uh, uh, the beginning of this interview is sort of political science, international relations, international security studies. So, so it was fantastic to be supervised by someone like Max, who comes from, from that discipline, uh, but is also uh, uh, has this tremendous capacity to to get you to think about things uh, in many different ways and think about the combination of things as well. And again, I could have chosen many different aspects of his uh, very substantial contribution to these debates and to this discipline. Uh, I chose that because that begins to uh, uh, come at it, I think, from a slightly different perspective, looking at the individual, uh, where he and John Horgan made uh, uh, this very convincing case, I think, that, that we need to think about process variables, that that, that you, don't, you don't become a terrorist overnight, that radicalization is not a state, that there are a number of different things that are going on and, and, uh, in, in, in an individual's life. And what I particularly liked about that, that piece is how they talk about the kind of reciprocal relationship between contextual factors, between environmental factors in the individual's uh, uh, life at that particular time. Uh, other issues like the ideological issues, political issues, and other kind of contextual issues, all of this is kind of mixed together uh, and there's a reciprocal relationship between all those different variables, and they and they create this kind of unique combination uh, that we need to understand in each case. And, and I actually think it's a very helpful way in which to understand what's going on on an individual level. It is also, in my view, uh, a very helpful vocabulary to try and illustrate what's going on for individuals and when we talk about why do people become terrorists and all of these kind of things that we keep being asked I think that's the framework that's the language that we should be using and I think that that's you know, there's broad consensus now I think uh, predominantly because of this contribution that, that this is now how we frame uh, 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 those kind of questions uh, and, and it's useful also in order to bring together different kind of aspects uh, again that different disciplines will focus on whether that's ideological things, political things, more contextual things, uh, or, or, or the way in which the individual might interpret all of those things, which is different from from those kind of macro questions. Uh, and, and it's a very helpful framework for us to put all those questions in context. And one of the contextual things that we need to understand is what type of uh, literature, what type of media these individuals are engaged with. And so you can see the the communication aspect of not just the attacks, but 
the communications from the extremist organizations, like we, what we talked about previously, the statements of Bin Laden and al-Zawahiri and others. Um, and we need, like, what your work has gone on to do recently is not just look at these as a whole, but try and find some way to categorize these. Mm. Um, and this will lead us on to the next two pieces, a, a research note that you put in uh, Perspectives on Terrorism called Designing and Applying an Extremist Media Index, and as well uh, a report that you did for ICCT, What Types of Media Do Terrorists Collect? And actually, strangely, we see uh, in the designing and applying of an extremist media index, that's another piece of Max's literature, another piece yes. of Max's work that has influenced you. Yes. And this is the Copine Project. Could you tell, before you tell people about the extremist media index, could you tell them about the Copine Project and then how that influenced what you went on to do? Well, well, well Copine, of course, is, is, is Max's work on, on uh, 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 Child exploitation material and, and how to grade and come up with a meaningful way in which uh, uh, pictures, in particular, can be categorised in, in in relation to the severity and the severity of the actions that they depict. So it's a sort of scale, if you like, uh, 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 for that kind of media material, uh, which got us thinking about how we can try and do something similar in this field, in the field of terrorism, political violence, which is obviously different, more challenging in some ways for different reasons. This is a very subjective realm. Um, the definition of extremism is always relative because you have to define what's normal first, what normal shifts. Th 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 there are things now that we regard as being perfectly acceptable and normal that were regarded as very extreme in this country, in this society, in our culture, or in any culture 10, 15 years ago. So, the, so the, this is a very shifting realm by definition, and I think political always is. Uh, but to try and find ways in which we can at least try and be systematic in, in, in our thinking about media material associated with terrorism, political violence. And we worked, I worked with Max Taylor on this, I worked with Gilbert Ramsey, uh, a, a former colleague from St Andrews as well on this as well, to, to, to think about how we can be systematic in our analysis of extremist language and extremist discourse. And the uh, grading framework that I came up with is just a sort of, I guess, an initial stab to come up with not only meaningful definitions, which are which are intuitive. So So what I do initially is to find a body of content, media content, and to define uh, uh, whether it's moderate, whether it's extreme, and then I came up with a category which is between the moderate and the extreme uh, are ideal types, if you like, which I call fringe. A moderate is material that doesn't uh, uh, condone violence in any way. It's sort of what's often referred to as the mainstream narrative, whether, the, whether that's a mainstream religious or a political narrative. Fringe is an isolationist, hostile narrative, and that's explained in far more detail in the paper. And then the extreme category refers to material that does not only justify, but promotes violence um, um, in contemporary scenarios. There are uh, a number of subcategories of the extremist uh, 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 category of material as well, because um, I think... Uh, you often find material that glorifies violence, but it's very uh, thin on detail. So there's that effort to try and pry out and highlight 
uh, that facilitated dimension in the discourse as well. Uh, but the aim of the exercise is just to come up with a toolkit, which I think we've all thought about. I mean, lots of people have different ways in which to grade material, but to try and be systematic about it. So what I did with the... the um, after coming up with the definitions and applying them to a body of content, both from the extreme right and and unreliable uh, uh, material, was, was kind of a representative of, of, of English language Islamist extremist content, was to do a lot of work on interracial reliability, which which I think we is done much more rarely in this context. Um, uh, and again, those kind of tests are, are usually de devised for more quantitative dimensions of of the social sciences. Uh, but they're important for us to to use and to utilize and to apply as we design this kind of grading uh, or do this kind of grading work as well, uh, because it helps us think about the inevitable overlap between categories, how severe that overlap is, and how we can rejig the definitions um, once we've done several interreliability reliability tests. Uh, to try and reduce that overlap as much as possible effectively so that you enhance the likelihood of me grading a bunch of documents or videos or, or lectures uh, and then you doing the same and that we come up with roughly the same results. Mm. Now, now this is obviously, a, as I said, a very subjective realm so we're never going to come up with perfect results. If I do 100 titles and you do 100 titles, we're not going to agree on all of them. It's never going to happen. But uh, we, we got relatively good internet reliability results. Uh, and we've sort of taken it on from there to, to, to create a, 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 a toolkit that uh, helps us do some of the systematic work within this field of analysis. So when we're looking at uh, media material, to at least to be able to do that in some sort of meaningful ways, in 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 a in a qualitative sense, but at least it, it forms it, it does some of that groundwork, which I think is time consuming, uh, but nevertheless is important for us to do if if we want to be systematic in doing this, and it lays the foundation for for arguably lays the foundation for other related work in this field, whether that's uh, on an automated toolkit or indeed longitudinal analyses, which is which is what I've tried to do as well. And you've then gone on and applied this uh, extremist media index in relation to close to 1,700 publications. Yeah. Um, and this is in the paper by uh, published with ICCT, What Types of Media Do Terrorists Collect? So when you're applying this this toolkit, and what were your, your key findings? Um, what exactly, what type of, of uh, media are we seeing uh, terrorists mm. collecting? I mean... The publications that I chose to talk about here illustrate a bit of a transition in terms of how I'm, of my work essentially, I think in my PhD, I, I was on the very kind of macro scale of things, the ideas that are out there and the theoretical framework that I use is also very macro, you know, mm -hmm. how, how, do, how do leaders sh try and shape a movement and, and attract people? Uh, and that's mostly theoretical because inevitably people don't always respond to that message. Uh, that, as Max Taylor's and John Horgan's paper would suggest, happens for a whole host of reasons. So, so, so in my work, I've subsequently started to look much more at what individuals are doing, which is a completely different perspective. I'm not doing that suggesting that they respond simply to, to an ideological message or a political message or a religious message. We know that isn't the case. But the effort here is to be more systematic in answering those questions about how individuals interact 
with the, the, this vast repository of, of material which is available to them now online, whether that is all of Bin Laden and Simon Zahari's, Ayman uh, al-Zahari's communiques, or, or ISIS's statements, or any other extremist material, or indeed less extremist ideological, religious, political material which is out there. Uh, uh, and that essentially is... is the fundamental research question behind the ICCT paper and some of the other work that I'm doing at the moment is to try and come up this, uh, at this question from a different perspective. Knowing that individuals who have become involved in terrorism uh, have access to a very, very substantial, whatever you want to call it, body of content narrative discourse online, whether that's Islamist extremist or far right or whatever it is, uh, the the particular parts or components of that narrative that they select is a different question, and and, and that's the kind of approach that I've tried to, tried to take. So the ICCT paper represents a, a, a kind of an initial stab at an ongoing research project which I'm on at the moment, going through a, a evidential material which law enforcement bodies prepared for for court in cases where individual terrorists in the United Kingdom have been convicted of of serious terrorist offences. So I mean, terrorism legislation, as we know. In the UK, it's very broad. Uh, some of the offences within that body of legislation are, are less serious. This is the kind of higher end of individuals who have actually either carried out acts of terrorism or, or usually attempted to carry out acts of terrorism. The, the attempts were foiled and they were convicted in court. Uh, and uh, this material has been identified from, from the material that was prepared for, for court. And in doing that, I, I found, identified, uh, as you said, 1,700 uh, media publications, which which can be defined in broadly ideological terms, so material conveying religious, political, or other ideological uh, content, and this is just an effort to try and see uh, how individuals involved in those cases, those individuals who were convicted of terrorism offences in ten cases, although the work, as I say, is, is ongoing, uh, what they selected and how that has changed over time. The time period in 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 this particular paper is is. Uh, uh, around 12 years. So it gives us a, a, a chance. Obviously, these are snapshots. So this, is, this is a sample from a larger population. But it gives us a chance to try and see how some of these things have changed over time. And one of the things we're seeing in this that might be surprising to a lot of people is in that the majority of cases you see the presence of material which is actually presenting arguments condemning violence. Yes, I mean, that was, uh, to me, was surprising as well. I think I wasn't necessarily surprised to find that, that the terrorists have been interested in modern material. I think that's obvious. I mean, the, the, they have other concerns. There are other things going on in their lives than simply the planning of terrorist acts. So they have relationship issues. They, they, they are trying to define their position in the world, uh, the way in which they see their religion or the, the uh, political universe and the rest of it. So that's not necessarily surprising, that the majority of what they've collected is, is moderate according to the, the kind of grading criteria that I came up with. But within that category, you have material which is, is effectively the counter-narrative in, in many key cases, which, which was one of my initial findings. Uh, and I, perhaps we shouldn't be surprised by that. I mean, this material is available on the internet, uh, but we've seen individuals involved in the planning of terrorist acts actively seeking out that message. Uh, perhaps they do that when it's too late. Perhaps they don't find it convincing. Perhaps they find the extremist alternative more exciting, more gripping, uh, 
are more credible. We don't know. Uh, but that certainly, uh, uh, as an observation, is something which was to me was quite clear, is that there are a number of key examples where you see individuals not only collecting but interacting with, with effectively a counter-narrative. Whether that's a religious counter-narrative, as it normally was, the message that, that you do not have the right to take lives, you do not have the right to take your own life, you do not have the right to carry out acts of terrorist violence. Or, or, or other types of counter-narratives as well. Yeah, it sort of raises the question of whether these counter-narratives can and do actually work, but I suppose we need a, a control group to compare it to as well. Well, uh, absolutely. We, we would need a control group, and and it, it doesn't necessarily mean to say that that work is, is, is futile. I've no doubt that it isn't, but it just goes to show that, that these, and again, going back to, to Taylor and Horgan's piece, these are very complex processes that can take... a, a quite a lot of time and we need to be aware uh, uh, of that fact uh, and, and that our thinking of counter-terrorism of counter-narrative sorry needs to be thought of in that context as yeah. well and one of the I asked you earlier on about um, how you got verifiable translations uh, for when you were developing Al-Qaeda 2.0 and the reason that I asked it is because in this piece you talk about the role that publishers play as yes. gatekeepers and interpreters what exactly were you discussing there? Why do you feel that's an important point to raise? Well, what I found was that uh, these particular individuals involved in, in, in cases that were, were ongoing between around 2003, uh, uh, four, uh, uh, and then uh, uh, up until about 2016, uh, even though, you know, ostensibly they were looking at... Uh, uh, you know there are a number of stuff. There are a number of things going on in in, in uh, the, the kind of jihadi universe, if you like, at that particular time. They appeared to be just as interested in material that was produced way before then in the 1980s. The 1980s saw the production of several key essays and communiques by 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 uh, very important in, individuals within this field, uh, Abdullah Azam and others, about you know the the obligation to go out and fight and and, and the individual obligation of of all believers to go and embrace violence in some form. Uh, uh, so they were interested, continued to be interested in this sort of ostensibly dated material. But what I also found was that uh, all of the subjects that I looked at uh, couldn't speak Arabic, and this material was originally authored in, in, in Arabic, inevitably. So I looked at the particular versions of whether that's Abdullah Azam or whether that's Said Qutb and the other kind of you know seminal individuals within this particular milieu, what the kind of versions of their publications they were reading because they're reliant on translations, and what we find is that these works have been ava made available in English by a relatively small number of whatever you want to call them, kind of in informal publication networks. And there are a number of sort of entrepreneurs involved in that space. Babar Ahmed is one of them and came up with a, a publishing group called Azam Publications. Uh, another one was a, 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 a publisher or an online library that was based out of Birmingham called Magda Balanzar. And they translated this narrative, which was originally authored in Arabic, but in doing so, and in, in, in some cases, they change it as well. Particularly, Magda Balanzar was known to change some of the some of the uh, 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 change the English language version from the Arabic original, adding footnotes, for example, uh, that 
brought or attempted to bring the narrative into much more of a contemporary context. So, so it, it sort of uh, helps us think about the type of publications that these individuals are actually looking at. And it's a reminder that these questions can be much more nuanced than simply saying they're reading Said Qutb because they might be reading an interpretation of Said Qutb mm. that potentially could be different from what Said Qutb originally intended. So it was bringing uh, 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 our attention to those kind of questions as well. Yeah, and this is, it's, it's a fascinating paper. It's, I think it's hugely important and it's a really important approach um, to take and to understand uh, this context as well. What we see as well is that the most dominant person that they, they're um, reading about or more likely listening to because audio was the most popular uh, form of communication they were, that most popular form of media you find is Anwar al Awlaki, and so we need to understand exactly what he's saying and and, yeah. uh, and exactly what's going on there. I know we've only got a couple of minutes left, on, so I just want to, to ask you quickly, uh, as I do all our guests, with all this background in mind and your own extensive knowledge of the area, how do you feel the health of terrorism research is at the moment? Um... It's it's hard to say. Uh, I, I I think it's both been described as as, as experiencing a golden age and uh, uh, as experiencing a, a a a pretty dark phase of an utter lack of of um, empirical basis. So uh, those are two extremes, and I think we'll probably find the reality somewhere in between. Uh, there there are some real dilemmas and challenges that we're never going to be rid of. Uh, not just the definitional challenge, which which I think is uh, we've touched upon, but uh, but the other one is is the fact that this this involves, as I said, so many different disciplines, and I would like to see us being better at bringing those disciplines together. I think there have been a number of stellar efforts to do that, but I still feel, and this is obviously not exclusive to to, to the study of terrorism, but particularly acute, perhaps in that con- context. I would like to see us do more of uh, uh, this kind of bringing together lessons from different disciplines, whether that's psychology and political science and security studies and history and 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 you know even anthropology and 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 all all of these various other disciplines and sociology. I think is 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 not only theoretically but also in terms of some some of the other lessons that 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 can be derived from that discipline. We need to do we need to do more of that. We need to do more of that, uh, uh, and I think that that's exciting. It means that there, there's certainly things that we can still do, uh, but I think it's high time to try and incorporate lessons mm-hmm. and also to be better at bringing insights uh, uh, from other disciplines that perhaps have not been applied to these particular questions and to be better at, at collating those and thinking about uh, how we can pull these different lessons and perspectives together. I, th- I think that's how I would like to see uh, th- this kind of work continuing. Okay, well, thank you so much for that and thank you for giving up your time today for it. As, as always, if you want to read more about the research that was talked about here, there are links on Donald's profile on the Turk website, that's uel.ac.uk slash T-E-R-C. And um, you can read more in depth about his research and about the research which has influenced him. So I'd just like to thank you all uh, for listening. Until then, goodbye.